turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 1 to 11. Follow along as I read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of the of knowledge, uh, I'm sorry, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness comes from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, there's a lot at stake this morning. We must trust in the Lord alone, as if justification depends upon it, because it does. We must trust in the Lord alone as if our joy depends upon it, because it does. Resting in Christ alone, it affects our lives in this temporary, right here, right now, present existence. It affects our joy. It also affects our eternity. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Rejoicing by Resting in the Lord Alone. That's my first point for us this morning. Rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. What's fascinating about this word finally is that it's got a few other meanings, one of which is rest. And it doesn't mean rest, like take a nap, rest. It means like to the rest of you, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It can also mean moreover, as in moreover, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It also means finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So I'm inclined to interpret this as moreover, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Continue to rejoice in the Lord. But he could be, like any good pastor, saying, finally, my brothers, and he's got three conclusions before he lands the plane in his letter, right? It's possible. But what's he getting at here? Rejoice in the Lord. Why? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 29. Look at what he just said. He just said, receive him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy. 
and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So as I said last week, when we were looking at that particular portion of Philippians, the Lord Jesus desires that we rejoice in models of humility in our church. He desires that we honor those men and women, those humble servants in our church. But Paul does not want our joy or honor to dead end on people, imperfect people. He always wants it to be ultimately landing in Christ alone, knowing that any virtue of humility, any service, any true sacrifice is rooted in Christ. That's why we serve. That's why we make sacrifices. It's because Christ came not to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. He laid down his life for us. He sacrificed his own life so that we could have eternal life, so we could have forgiveness of our sins. And so we don't ever want our joy to dead end on a person. They become an idol in that moment. Paul wants us to continue to rejoice in the Lord. He wants the Philippians to continue to rejoice in the Lord. And this is not like the monotonous, you know, in the clouds, with the harps. Like, it's kind of getting boring now after the first 437 years, right? This is not this repetitive act of obedience, of, of spiritual, ritual, religiosity. It is a joy that is increasing in intensity for all eternity. That's what's going to happen in the years to come and when the Lord takes you home. You will continue to rejoice in the Lord in greater intensity with greater emotions tied up in it than you do even now. It's hard to believe that, you know, when you become a Christian, in that moment of, of putting your faith in Christ and realizing how dirty you are and how he's washed you clean by his blood, you're like, there's no way I'm going to rejoice more than this in this moment right now. And he's saying, yes, you absolutely can. And you absolutely will if you keep your eyes on Christ. And if you continue to grow in a knowledge of Christ and his love for you. I mean, Paul prays this for the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, he prays that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's a lot of love. Boundless love. No dimensions of measuring that love for you that's in Christ. You're just not aware of it yet. Neither am I. Repeating this command to rejoice in the Lord, it's easy for Paul. He says, it's no trouble for me. None at all. You know, so much of our, our Christian discipleship is not that we're attaining necessarily more knowledge, but so much of our Christian discipleship is, is someone exhorting us to remember and trust what we know, such as God is sovereign, even over this trouble you're in right now, even over this trial you're in. God is actually somehow using that trial to make you more into the image of Christ. It's, it's for your good in that way. He's sanctifying you through that. We need the reminder, go and make disciples. Evangelize the lost. Endure suffering. We need those reminders because sometimes we know it, but we don't believe it or embrace it. And so we have to, we have to hear it again and again. Repeating this command is not just easy for Paul. He knows it's good for them. He knows it's necessary. He knows it's helpful. It's safe for the Philippians, and it's safe for you and I. There are going to be, I hope to be, 
in this pulpit for the rest of my life. God knows. Only God knows. But I hope that, right? And so I'm telling you right now, I'm a fairly young man, and if I continue to stay here with you and we worship together, I'm going to be reminding you of things and reminding myself of things because the scriptures are going to be reminding us of things over and over again, right? And it's safe for me to do that as a pastor. It's safe for you and I to do that with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. What does that mean, it's safe? Well, the flip side of that is it's dangerous not to be reminded of truth that we know. Maybe that we believe, but there's still some unbelief in our hearts. It's safe for him to say, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, he'll say, rejoice in the Lord. Again, immediately, he says, again, I tell you, rejoice. And then he gives reasons, but the reason why it's safe for Paul to remind them of things they know, and for me to remind you, and for us to remind one another, is that we need to rejoice in the Lord Jesus or we will rejoice in something else. We will rejoice in someone else. We, we are natural worshipers. God has created us as the Imago Dei, the image of God. We naturally are inclined to worship something. We love rejoicing in things. Sometimes it's our accomplishments. We celebrate those. Sometimes it's the upcoming holidays. You know why there's so many holidays in the calendar? And do you know why there's so many more holidays that Google or uh, uh, Apple will add to your calendar? Like, yeah, it's National Taco Day or whatever. You know why that is? Because we're worshipers. We love rejoicing. We love worshiping even, you know, carne asada instead of the incarnate God. I mean, isn't that true? It's true. We love worshiping sports teams. I mean, go Rangers, but don't worship the Rangers, right? Don't live and die on the Rangers. Certainly don't live and die on the Cowboys. You'll be disappointed. Extravagant vacations, we love to relish in those. Delicious meal at Thanksgiving. My mama's sweet potato casserole with marshmallows on top. The Christmas bonus that you may or may not get. The retirement that's up ahead. We, we love rejoicing in things. And rejoicing it really is a form of worship. And so Paul's saying, rejoice in the Lord. He is shepherding them into safe worship, into safe rejoicing, because he knows that their flesh is tempted to worship, worship other things. He knows that, that the world is trying to lure them into to, to worshiping something or someone else, American Idol, right? I mean, there's just so many options out there. And then there's the one true God. He just wants us to worship Jesus. And then there's false teachers. I mean, it's not just your flesh, your heart. It's not just the world. It, there's false teachers who are leading you into a worship that shares worship with Jesus. Might even give Jesus 99%, but says this is still the 1%. Worship this also. It's not worshiping Christ alone. It's worshiping Christ also, dot, 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 fill in the blank. And you need to beware. And Paul tells the Philippians, they need to beware. So my second point is this. Renounce false teaching that adds to Jesus. Let me make it simple for you. Renounce false teaching that says salvation is found in Jesus plus fill in the blank. It's salvation equals Jesus. And the plus sign is his cross. There is no addition. That is it. It dead ends on him. Salvation is found in Christ alone, not Christ also, this or that or the other. 
And so Paul says some, I mean, he used some fierce language. Look at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. None whatsoever. Jesus plus nothing. Who's Paul referring to? I mean, you're going to call someone a dog. You know, I want to know who he's talking about. Very likely he's talking about the Judaizers. Maybe you've heard of the Judaizers. Who were they? They were a group of Jews who were also professing Christians. So they were Jews by ethnic heritage, but they were Christians in the sense that they said, oh yeah, sure, Jesus is the Messiah. But listen, if you're a Gentile, you need to get circumcised first. You need to submit to the Mosaic law before you can really become a Christian. For you're a true Christian. Years ago, after I led this young man to Christ, um, he was at a Walmart. This is like two weeks after he was converted. God saved him, and then he's just carrying on in life, and he's rejoicing in the Lord. He's in this Walmart. He sees, a, he sees an older man, and he's wearing a Jesus t-shirt of some kind. You know, he's sporting Christ. But Christ was on the outside. He wasn't on the inside. Because this new convert walks up to him and says, oh my gosh, are you a Christian? I just became a Christian. I love Jesus. I'm so grateful that he died for me. And, and the man turns to this new disciple of mine, and he goes, oh, so you just became a Christian? So you're not really a Christian yet. You're not really a Christian yet. You haven't done anything for Christ yet. And that young man comes to me in tears, and he's, he's sincerely going, what have I, am I, am I deceived? Like, what have I not done? What must I do to be, I thought Christ was enough. And I said, yes, he is enough. And here it is in the scriptures. This man is deceived. This man's wearing Christ on the outside and it doesn't have him on the inside. There's false teachers all over the place. Paul calls the Judaizers dogs. The first century dogs, they were roaming the streets. They were like scavengers, you know, you see in the third world countries. They weren't your cute little pet that, you know, you've got like a golden bowl at home that you pour cool water in and you've got, you know, their food's better than your food some nights. You know, it's not like that. They weren't the sweet little cuddly animal that's your pet. Uh, They were disgusting animals on the streets. A dog, it was a general term for derision in the ancient world, but it was also a specific term for Gentiles by some Jews. They called them dogs because they weren't ritually clean. They're dirty according to their Jewish customs and ceremonies. And what's amazing is that Paul, ironically, he flips it on them. He, he flips the script. He says, no, you're a dog. And these Gentiles who are in Christ alone and who are uncircumcised, they're not, they're a mago day. You're a dog because you haven't trusted in Christ alone. You're, you're still trusting in Christ plus circumcision. They're evildoers. These Judaizers, they prided themselves for their righteous deeds, for their personal piety, for their ritual cleanliness. And in so doing, they were condemning themselves. They thought that they were good doers and they were evildoers. He says they're those who mutilate the flesh. And it's ironic because their badge of pride is circumcision. And says, no, no, no. That's actually not a sign of of covenant with God. That's not a sign of your nearness with God. That is the sign that you are separated from God. You're still dead in your sins because you're trusting in that. A scalpel more than the Savior. 
The term, the word circumcision is to cut around, but the term mutilate is to cut off. So by adding the act of circumcision to faith in Jesus as a necessary work to be saved, they're actually cutting themselves off from God. Whoa. This is true for us today. I mean, anyone who adds anything or anyone to Jesus in order to be saved is condemned. In contrast to the false teachers, Paul describes true worshipers of God. Look at verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision. That's what those Jews called themselves. We're the circumcision. Like, as if there was a hierarchy in, in Christianity, you know? And he says, no, we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. We are the people of God. Listen to Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. Meaning, it is, it is something that's done to you. You're giving a new heart in fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 that God would take the heart of stone from your chest and give you a heart of flesh. That he would circumcise your heart. That's what it means. It's a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Meaning, not by the law. Meaning, not by your hand, but by God's hand who's doing that surgery maneuver there. John the Baptist rebukes Pharisees who prided themselves in their ethnic heritage. Matthew 3, verse 9, he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. He says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up offspring, children from, for Abraham. And don't you, you think that's interesting that stones from these stones? Because that's exactly what he does. He takes a heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. Genesis 15, verse 5 and 6. God brings Abraham outside of his tent. And this is what he says to him. It's nighttime. He says, look toward heaven. Toward the stars. And there's no pollution of light back then. I mean, it's like dark and then it's poof, Stars multitude of stars and Abraham's looking up in the sky and God says if you're able to number them Abraham's going goodness gracious it's gonna be all night it's gonna be morning the stars will be gone before I'm done counting and then I have to restart he didn't actually say that but I'm sure he, he had to been thinking that and God says so shall your offspring be this brother I mean his wife's barren he didn't have a single kid and God's saying, so shall your offspring be. It's a promise of God. And listen to how Abraham responded. It said he believed the Lord. Against all odds, barren womb, no children. And then what did God do? It says he counted it to him as righteousness. That, that means that Abraham was justified by faith alone. That's testified to elsewhere in the scriptures but what's interesting is that his children are those who put their faith in God alone and his promise to save. Galatians 3.29 says it explicitly. If you are Christ, meaning if you have taken refuge in Christ alone, not Christ also, this, that, or the other, but in Christ, he says, then you are Abraham's offspring. 
heirs according to the promise. You're more than Abraham's offspring. You're God's offspring. You're a child of God if you are Christ. True worshipers are those who, it says, worship by the Spirit of God. Do you see that? Worship by the Spirit of God. It is someone who's born again. It's not just someone who goes through the motions. It's not, it's not the person who's checking the boxes. They're attending church. They're, you know, they, they're worshiping, but it's just going through rhythms. It's someone who has been born again. It's someone who has the Holy Spirit of God living within them because they have put their faith in Christ alone. Think about the conversation Jesus had with the half-Jew, half-Gentile, Samaritan woman at the well. Listen to this. John chapter 4, verse 20. She says to him, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. It's not just for the Jews, it's from the Jews. But Abraham's offspring would be a culmination of both Jew, ethnically, and Gentiles, the nations. He said, we worship what we know. Salvation's from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So having put our faith in Christ alone, having received the Holy Spirit as our first birthday gift of that new birth, having gathered as the body of Christ, individual members of it, what do we do? We worship in spirit and truth. Where? Anywhere we want. Gymnasium? Sure. Barn? Yeah. A building that we construct? Sure. We're not going to change anything. We're, We're here to worship in spirit and truth. We can worship anywhere. When we come together, when we open up the word of God, when we worship not just with zeal in the Holy Spirit, but when we worship in truth, meaning we are expositing the word of God together, and we're looking at what Jesus says, not man. Who are true worshipers? They're those who glory in Christ Jesus alone. And that word there, glory, it means to boast with exultant joy. I love that. It's very interesting because it doesn't matter how sincere your worship is. I mean, you can sincerely worship Buddha or sincerely worship Allah or anyone else or anything else, but sincerity doesn't save anyone. I mean, it can be sincere, like I really believe this, but if it's not in spirit and truth, if it's not the true Jesus of the Bible, it's not true worship. It's false worship. The Judaizers were worshiping a Christ plus circumcision. It's not true worship. He says that true worshipers are those who, thirdly, put no confidence in the flesh. Well, what is the flesh? What does he mean by that, the flesh? John Calvin says that the flesh is everything that is outside of Christ. That's a very good summary. That's a very concise summary. What is the flesh? Could be anything outside of Jesus. It's that, it's whatever is in the fill in the blank. It's whatever is in the Jesus plus this or that. That's what's the flesh. It's you putting in confidence in something other than the Savior alone. Romans 3, 27. What then becomes of our boasting? 
when it's in Christ alone? Is it, ex- it is excluded. We can't boast in anything of ourselves, anything of the flesh. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, made right with God. By faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So friends, again, our heart's tendency is to justify themselves. The world is trying to lure us into justifying ourselves, looking for what's good in us. They're saying things like, just trust in yourself. Be the best version of yourself. When the word of God says, become more like Christ. Like, lose yourself to become more like Christ. Become less of you, become more of him. He's not trying to eradicate all your personality. He's just trying to make you holy. And false teachers today are working hard to deceive people. I mean, they will, the, the most sinister and insidious deception is not, nah, it's not Jesus. It's sure Jesus, but also plus this. I mean, my, there's parts of my heart that wants to believe that because if that's true, that more people could be saved, surely, but that's not what God's word says. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus alone. I, I was listening to an interview, the Ben Shapiro show, you might be, you might know it. Ben Shapiro, he was interviewing, he's a Jew, he was interviewing a false teacher by the name of Bishop Robert Barron, and he's a Catholic. And I want you to listen to just a window into this conversation. This is what, this is what Ben Shapiro said. He said, what's the Catholic view on who gets into heaven and who doesn't? He said, I, you know, I feel like I lead a pretty good life where I tried to keep not just the Ten Commandments, but a solid 603 other commandments as well. I spend an awful lot of my time promulgating Judeo-Christian values and virtues. So what's the Catholic view on me here? Am I basically, and I'm going to paraphrase, in deep trouble here? This is how Bishop Robert Barron, the Catholic, responded. No. He starts by saying, are you in trouble here by trusting in your your obedience to the law? No. You recall weeks ago when I quoted Jeremiah 8 where false prophets and false priests were saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace, when the people were not reconciled to God, when the people needed to repent and turn to God to be forgiven of their sin. Do you remember that? Nothing's changed. And Bishop Robert Barron says, peace, peace, Ben. And it's a shallow peace. It's no peace at all. There's many like him wearing sheep's clothing, but they're wolves. And this is what he says. He says, no, you're fine. He says, go back to the, and then he doesn't say the scriptures. He says, go back to the Second Vatican Council. It says Christ is the privileged route to salvation. And then listen to this. He says, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that we might find eternal life. However, I'm going to stop right there. That's not even a right reading of the scripture. 
Listen to this. It's subtle, friends. I mean, I'm fighting for you on this side of the pulpit right now. It's so subtle, you might believe it. He says, you know, God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that we might find eternal life. That's not what it says. John 3.16, the thing that's so common and familiar, you could hear that and go, yeah, yeah, that's what it says. It doesn't say that. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Not find eternal life, but receive it as a free gift through faith alone. You see this? Evil. Evil. He said, yeah, he's the privileged route. He's the only route. He says, however, you know, yeah, John 3.16, however, the Vatican II clearly teaches that someone outside the explicit Christian faith can be saved. He says, if you're following your conscience clearly, you can be saved. Yikes. I mean, I feel like I need like mouthwash just reading this. It's so evil because there's his words and then there's Jesus' words. And Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusive Christian faith. That's as exclusive as you get. That's a narrow door. It's a single door. There's one way, faith in Christ alone. The apostles reverberated that. They, they were preaching that. They said in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ in him alone, not your conscience. Your conscience should make you aware that you're a sinner. God has written the law on your heart so that you would be aware that, yeah, there are things I should do and there's things I shouldn't do. I haven't done the things I should and the things that I shouldn't do I have done. And yet Christ Jesus paid for my sin in full. There's no salvation in my conscience. There's no salvation in my partial obedience. There is salvation in Christ and his full and complete, fully furnished work on the cross. Amen? Praise Jesus. Here's my third point for us this morning. In light of that, I want you to reflect on what you are tempted to trust in in addition to Jesus. It's not going to be conscientious things. It's going to be something in your subconscious. It's going to be the thing that fills in that blank. Jesus plus that will save me. I mean, yeah, Jesus, but also, you know, I've done this. I've not done that. Think about that as, as we look at... Paul reflecting on that. Verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he presents some reasons that he could give for his confidence in the flesh. And I think what Paul's doing here is he's basically heading off an objection that the Judaizers might say, look, Paul, I think you're using Jesus as a crutch. I think you're putting too much weight in Christ when you say it's Christ alone. And he's saying, no, he's, he's like my wheelchair. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm laying flat out on a thing, that, that, that pe- a stretcher that people are carrying me. He's carrying me on. He's not a crutch. I, I'm putting all of my weight on him. 
He's basically saying, look, before I encountered Christ on the Damascus Road, I lived by the Judaizers' standards a pretty righteous life. And he could boast in his flesh based on those standards, but he knows how worthless it is. He knows that it's damning him if he does that. It's condemning him. He knows that it it fed the monster of pride within him. He knows that it kept him in bondage to self-righteousness. There was no freedom in it. He could not attain the Savior's righteousness by still holding on to some of his. It was a situation where he had to totally let go in order to take hold of Christ. Seven things that he brings up. The first four are things that he inherited, meaning he really didn't do much. It was more of his parents that did it for him. The the last three are things that he merited, things that he leaned into as he got older. And and I'm going to read them to you. The first one's this. He was circumcised on the eighth day. So why why could he boast in that? Number one, it was commanded that Jews be circumcised. Number two, it was commanded that it would be on a particular day. And guess who got circumcised on the eighth day? Paul. But Paul didn't do it. Eight-year-old baby didn't circumcise himself. His parents or a doctor or someone else circumcised him, right? He was of the people of Israel by birth. Paul didn't choose this. It means he's ethnically a Jew. He was an Israelite. As a matter of fact, his family was so devoted to Judaism that they knew what tribe they were in of the 12 tribes. Like, like Paul didn't have to spit into a tube and send it off to Ancestry.com for them to send it back in a mail and say, hey, you're a Benjaminite. He knew he was a Benjaminite. His parents knew. They named him Saul. That was the first king of Israel. He was a Benjaminite. Saul was. King Saul. Saul obviously had his name changed to Paul after his conversion, but he was first named Saul. I mean, he's, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the third piece. Fourth, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Most scholars think that that phrase means he was speaking the Jewish language of the time, which was Aramaic when Paul was walking the earth. It's interesting because Paul grew up in Tarsus, which is mainly a Gentile area. There's not a lot of Jews in Tarsus at that time, but Paul was sent, not by his choice, but by his family. I mean, they sent him to Jerusalem. They said, if you want to be a Hebrew of Hebrews, we've got to send you to the place where Hebrew of Hebrews gather. I'm going to send you to study under Rabbi Gamaliel. You're going to learn the law, Paul. And so that's where he went from his youth. He was like a young man that grew up in Austin, Texas Longhorn fan from birth. His parents went there. His grandparents went there. Great-grandparents. Great-great-great. Whenever the school was founded, that's, when, that's how long his, his family has been going to the University of Texas. And so Paul comes to campus, and he is bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, freshman. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews with Gamaliel. I mean, his, his family's got buildings with their names on it. They've got statues in the courtyard. That's the kind of Jew Paul was. Paul could have boasted in these things. Let's move on. That's what he inherited. What did he merit? He was a Pharisee. He became a Pharisee. As to the law of Pharisee. Well, who are the Pharisees? They're the most extreme sect of, Christ, of, of Jewish uh, leadership. It's like Paul wasn't just in the Navy. He was a Navy SEAL of the Jews. Pharisees were devoted to the Jewish scriptures. Here's the problem with Pharisees. They, 
they added to the Jewish scriptures. It, it was, yeah, Torah plus the traditions of the elders. So they added to the scriptures, and that gets you in a world of trouble when you do that. I was running Archie in the stroller this morning. I came across two Mormons, spoke with them, invited them to church. I don't think they're coming, but I, I pray they will one day. They told me they, they, they kind of could tell me on, my, on, on their face that they were not interested in coming to a Christian church, but I, I pray that they will. I'm going to keep witnessing to them. I'm going to hand out a track next time I'm running that route in my neighborhood. Don't add to the scriptures. Don't subtract from the scriptures. Just embrace the scriptures because they are the ones that testify to the true Christ. I don't want to worship a false Jesus. The Pharisees, they gave equal authority to those traditions of the elders as they did the scriptures. That gets you into a world of hurt. Paul was more zealous than anyone else. Where did his zeal come out? He was a persecutor of the church. You see that? Persecutor of the church. Jews at that time, man, zeal was like the greatest attribute you could possess as a Jew. And let me tell you what zeal is. Zeal is a person who not only loves what's good and right and true, but they also hate what's wicked and evil and unrighteous. That's what zeal is. I want to be a man of zeal. I want you to be men and women of zeal. He wasn't just a proponent of Judaism. He was a persecutor of those who perceived, he perceived to be opponents of, of, of Judaism, which were Christians. Acts 8 records that Paul, Saul, it says, ravaged the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 26, 11, he says, I punished them often in all the synagogues and I tried to make them blaspheme. I mean, he was like laying traps to persecute Christians. In a raging fury, he says, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He went out of his way to destroy these Christians. He held the cloak of the men who stoned Stephen to death, the first martyr. As to the law, thirdly, he says, I'm blameless. And what's very crucial for you to see here is that's not sinless, obviously. It's not sinless. Everyone's sinned. So what does he mean by blameless? He means that he was above reproach. It, what it means is that no one could charge him with open debauchery. They couldn't say, hey, Paul, I don't know. I saw you the other day out and about, and you're kind of walking in some debauchery there, buddy. Paul, like the rich young ruler of Mark 10, he saw the law as a series of external regulations to keep, and he believed that he too had kept them from his youth. It's dangerous. That's self-righteousness. God could see his heart. But Paul was not an Old Testament believer. He was a proud and lost legalist. But friends, I'm, I'm going to ask you this morning the same question I've been asking myself this week. What are you tempted to add to Jesus in your own life? What reasons for confidence in the flesh do you have? Some you've inherited maybe. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you always grew up going to church. Maybe your parents sent you to a Christian private school. They sent you to Awanas. Then they sent you to another Christian private school in college. You, you never, maybe never known a day outside of Christian community to a certain extent. What have you merited that, that you're tempted to trust in? Is it 
the good things you've done? Is it the, the regular church attendance? Is it the prayer you once prayed? Is it the steps you took as you walked down an aisle to pray that prayer? And you're putting more hope ever so subtly in a prayer you prayed than in the person and work of Christ? Is it the water that you stepped into in baptism that you're going, well, yeah, it's Jesus, but also, I mean, I was baptized, listen. What is it? Is it the money that you've given to church or other nonprofits? Is it the children you've supported overseas financially? Is it the mission trips you've gone on? Is it the ministries you've led and served in? What tempts you? What are you tempted to add to Jesus to justify yourself? Maybe it's not in the things you've done. Maybe it's in the things you haven't done. Maybe you're single and you're a virgin, and you're saying, well, he should let me in because... I haven't done that. Maybe you're married and you never committed adultery. Well, you know, he, he should let me in because I know a lot of people are committing adultery and having affairs these days, and I haven't. Maybe you're married and you haven't gotten divorced, and, and so you're putting some, there's some pride in your heart of, I'm seeing a lot of people drop off here, getting divorced, and I'm staying strong. I mean, I'm gritting my teeth, and I'm white-knuckling it, and marriage is terrible, but you know, I'm not divorced. I mean, seriously, if you think about it, what are you adding? It might just be the things you're not doing. I mean, I was out last week with Ryan Klink, Thomas Ailey, and we were evangelizing. We spoke to a guy, and I asked him straight up some questions like these, and he boasted in the fact that, well, listen, I've never committed any major sins, young man. I mean, I've never killed anybody. I said, well, that's, that's good to know in this particular moment, especially. But, you know, that's not going to save you. The fact you never murdered I bet you're a murderer of the heart. I bet you've harbored bitterness like me. <laughs> bet you hated someone before on a highway. Now, I'm going to ask you this morning, I want you to listen. Children, listen to me. Students. Older congregants, listen to me. Everything is on the line with this question. If you died today in the midst of this long sermon and you were to appear before God Almighty, and he were to ask you, what reason should I let you into the kingdom of heaven? What would you say? I mean, I talked to a professing Christian this past week with the men that I mentioned earlier. I mean, I asked the same question, and he's a Baptist. And he said, oh gosh, I don't know. And then he was silent. He didn't have an answer for the most important question of all. And so I ask you in a gymnasium where we worship in spirit and truth, what would you say to God if he said, why should I let you in to the kingdom of heaven? Would it be, well, Lord, I know your, your son did some good stuff, but I also did this. Or Jesus was really good, but, you know, I didn't do that. Would you justify yourself? Or would you just say, for my sake, you made Jesus Christ to be sin. Who knew no sin? So that in him, I, a sinner, 
might become something that I'm not. I might become the righteousness of God, which is what I need to be in your presence. I need your righteousness, not mine. What would you say to God if you died today? It's so easy to drift subconsciously into believing false gospels over time. Believing in a Jesus plus message. The author of Hebrews says, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 3, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How? How can we be careful? He says, exhort one another every day so long as it's called today. And the last time I checked, the time has changed, but today is today. And we need reminder of the gospel, even as believers, and especially as unbelievers. James 5 says, my brothers, if any of you, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It is our natural tendency to go astray. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one in his own way. And the Lord laid on Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all. <laughs> on him. Christ alone, not Christ and something else. We're like a car that's alignment is out of, of whack and that the steering wheel keeps going left or maybe it's going right but it's not going straight forward and it requires you have to turn it back and by way of reminder I'm trying to keep us on track that we look to Christ alone and we find assurance of salvation in Christ alone so that we can rejoice in Christ alone what's at stake our eternity what's at stake our joy right now Fourth and finally, resolve to trust in Christ Jesus alone. Resolve to trust in the Lord alone by way of this reminder. Paul's got new perspective. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I took accounting in college, and I think I got a C, probably C minus. I'm terrible at business stuff. My wife's great at it. But you don't need an accounting degree to understand the business language that Paul's using right here. It's so simple. He says the things that he once thought were credited to his account of, this is righteousness, this is the plus fill in the blank, this is good, this is making me right with God. He's now looking at him and he's going, mm, 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 that's debt, that's loss, that's not, that's not inflow, that's outflow. I mean, this is the most, he realizes in a moment that this is the worst miscalculation you could possibly make. He realizes he's in fraud, he's a fraud. He realizes that this accounting error in his spiritual life would have proven him to be a fraud, would have sent him to hell, where there, it's God's prison without parole. Once again, the Catholic Church believes in a purgatory. There is no such thing. Nowhere in Scripture. There, there's no parole. 
There's heaven and there's hell. And what you do with Christ, unless you let go of everything you think is earning you favor with God and take hold of Him, you will go to hell. But if you let go and you see these things as more than debt, as rubbish, I mean, it's trash. That, that, that word is, is manure. It's garbage. Unless you see it like that, unless you see your righteous deeds that you thought were righteous as that, and you take hold of Christ and you flee these things, you will not wake up after you die in the presence of God in heaven. You will not. You will be in darkness and there will be weeping and howling and gnashing of teeth. Because people aren't just sad, they're angry that God didn't justify them by their righteous deeds. I mean, I don't care if you're a deacon or an elder, a pastor, I don't care what you've done, a missionary, if you are holding on to anything but Christ alone, that's where you'll wake up after you die. Prison without parole. And I don't want that for you, so I'm pleading with you. Paul's like the man in the parable in Matthew 13. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Why did Paul do the things he did? Why did he suffer what he did? Because he had discovered the treasure of all treasures. Jesus Christ alone and his righteousness. What Paul experienced was a paradigm shift. I mean, if I asked you what's more valuable, a 20-ounce Gatorade or a 20-pound diamond? Well, the 20-pound diamond. But if I tell you the context is you're in the middle of a desert, hundreds of miles away from any water, that Gatorade starts looking pretty good, especially if it's the Blue Frost version, you know? And so all of a sudden, that 20 ounces, and this, all of a sudden, this 20-pound diamond, that seems like a heavy weight to carry hundreds of miles. Let it go. Let it go, whatever it is. Again, take one hand, close your nose, take that garbage of your righteousness, your self-righteousness, throw it over your shoulder, walk out to the garage, walk out to the trash can, throw it in, wheel it down to the base of your driveway, and let another guy take it further from your premises. Treat your good deeds like that and cling to Christ and you'll live. Isaiah 64, 6, we've all become like one who's unclean. And our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I'm not trying to be crude this morning by talking about garbage. I'm not trying to be crude, but I need you to understand that the biblical author has told us that our righteous deeds are like a used minstrel towel. I mean, that's what the Bible says. What do we do with that? Throw it in the trash. Because the only safe refuge is Christ alone. It's his blood on the cross, period. That's it. There's no life outside of him and his blood. Paul's got a new pursuit out of that new perspective. Verse 9 says, he desires to be found in Christ, 
not having a righteousness of his own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith to be found in him. I mean, you've seen me do this with my hands how many times now? In a few months. I want to be here when the trumpet blows. I want to be found in his righteousness. I don't want to be wearing a single sock or a hat or gloves of my own righteousness. I just want to be in him. And the more we take refuge in him, the more we are reminded of this truth, Christ alone, Christ alone, the more we rest in him, the more energy he gives us to serve him and live for him, the more joy we have in him. In him, he wants to be found. I can't help but think of hide and seek when I was a child. Where will you be found by God when Christ returns? Trusting in him? In his righteousness alone? Or will you slip on a, a piece of clothing in addition to his righteous robe? I pray that you'd come to him and you'd be found in him wearing nothing but him. I love Rock of Ages. We just sang it. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Unless you know you're helpless without him, you'll never come to him for grace. Unless you know you're helpless without him, you'll still wear some of your own. Paul doesn't just desire to be safe positionally in Christ. He wants to know him personally. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to share in his sufferings. He wants to become like him in his death so that by any means possible, he may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And friends, when Christ comes, there is a resurrection for all people. And it's a resurrection that leads some to life and some to death forever. Bodily, conscientious torment for eternity Let us be found in Christ alone. Paul wants to be aware of the power of Christ's resurrection. He wants to be in tune with the Holy Spirit of God who rose Christ from the dead. He wants to be in tune with the Spirit who lives actively in him and is ministering through him. He, he wants to have the fruit of the Spirit because he is keeping in step with the Spirit and the Word of God by faith. He wants to share with Christ in his sufferings. He wants to die like him. He wants to live and die in Christ. That's why he writes to the Galatians. He says, I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he says, I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no reason. He wants to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He wants to know Christ in that way. He wants, when Christ returns, he wants to experience a resurrection that leads to life. Friends, what do you long for this morning more than knowing Christ in these ways? Identify it. Our heart, I mean, my heart, y'all, it, it wants to, to live for other things. Suffering is hard but we should want to live and know Christ. Once you've identified the thing you're tempted to live and know more, repent of it. Rest in Christ alone. Receive his mercy. 
and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for sending the Son. We give you praise because you have imputed Christ's perfect righteousness to our spiritual bank account. You impute his righteousness to any sinner who confesses that they are bankrupt. They don't have a nickel, not a dime, not a penny to offer you. Those are who you reconcile to God. You, you have imputed Christ's perfect righteousness to the sinners on earth who confess that all their righteous deeds are like rubbish. They're garbage. They're manure in comparison to Christ and his righteousness. And we praise you for that. That defies the wisdom of man. We thank you that the person and the people who are truly resting in Christ alone in this gymnasium for their salvation, that they can continue to rejoice in Christ alone with greater intensity until you come. Amen.